Where would we be without the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Jesus would say, it's better for you that I go away. It's an advantage to you because now you have the helper who would come and do the work so needed to advance the gospel and all the world. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today we have an important message on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit and what is the work of the Holy Spirit? So open your Bibles to John chapter 16 and enjoy this important message together. ever noticed that uh, we as Christians tend to disagree? Uh, it was kind of an aha moment for me when I realized, wow, we have a lot of things we agree about and a lot of things we disagree about. And it seems like there's really no end to what we are willing to see differently. I mean, if you think about it, some of the, the, the tertiary side issues like politics, do we bring up politics at church? Do we, do we really hone in on a candidate or a specific party or just avoid it and be apolitical? Uh, things like dress, like do we, do we dress up for church, do we tuck our shirts in, wear suits and ties, someone would yell out, yes. Uh, do we wear jeans, do we wear uh, tennis shoes, what does that look like? We're, we have a lot of disagreements about that. There's disagreements like, like uh, music, do we, uh, at one point, syncopated rhythm and drums in a church was considered blasphemy, right? So there's these different things that, that we kind of disagree about, and these are all really not even important issues, but then there's secondary issues that we disagree about. There's, there's secondary issues like, like mode of baptism. Do we sprinkle or do we dunk? Uh, there's, there's issues like eschatology. When is Jesus coming again? Is, it, is there going to be a rapture? Is there going to be a millennial reign? And when does that happen? Is, 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 does this happen before the millennia? There's all these different questions we have about the end of the earth. Then there's the age of the earth. Is, 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 are we living in a, on a young earth or an older earth? These are things that Christians disagree about. Uh, things like church government. Should there be one leader or a plurality of leaders or no leaders? And so these are even secondary issues, and we haven't even gotten to the primary issues, and we are completely divided and segregated and arguing. We often magnify our differences. A lot of us on Facebook, when we see someone that disagrees with us, we unfriend them or we unfollow them. We don't want to have anything to do with them because the differences between us are so great. I love what Jonathan Swift wrote. He said, that was excellently observed, you have the quote for us, that was excellently observed, say I, when I read a passage in an author where his opinion agrees with mine. When we differ, there I pronounce him to be <laughs> mistaken. Uh, one of the great disagreements within Christianity is the role and work of the Holy Spirit. And so Protestant Christians have um, universally seem to agree uh, almost around you know, the world and around time around, about the work of the Father and the work of the Son. Almost universally, not 100%, but they seem to agree with the person and work of God the Father and God the Son. But in reference to the Holy Spirit, well, there are now a bunch of different views, a bunch of different opinions that divide believers down denominational lines. So what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? If we were to ask the Pentecostal, they would say, well, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is manifested in my life when I speak in tongues. That is, the, that is the evidence that I have the Holy Spirit is by speaking in tongues. And all believers who have the Spirit should speak in tongues. 
The faith healer would say, well, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, and I won't do the voice today, don't worry. Uh, The the work of the Holy Spirit is manifested in my life uh, when there's miraculous healings and there's signs and wonders and a large offering. Uh, Some would argue that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is done or greatly limited uh, when the canon of Scripture closed. And once the canon was closed, the bulk of the Spirit's work was completed. Others would attest that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is actually manifested in people being slain in the Spirit or writhing on the floor or barking or laughing hysterically. And so if nothing happens supernaturally uh, or, or different out of the box, then they would say, well, the Spirit has now Ichabod. It's departed. There's no more Spirit. There's no more Holy Spirit. Uh, years ago in Florida, in Lakeland, a man drew national controversy and attention when he talked about kicking women in the face with his biker boots so they could be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so um, those things might divide us, but what does the Bible say about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? If we were to look at maybe systematic theology, we look at different theological books, commentaries, a lot of systematic theologies, when you get to the section on the Holy Spirit, they just leave that section blank. And so they're just like, um, refer to Bible. They don't actually talk about the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And so what if we were to look at maybe the Christian creeds? Can we do that? Well, if we look at the Apostles' Creed, we get get one little mention where it it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, We do hear that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. uh, But we actually gain a little bit more through the Nicene Creed. I want to put it on the screen for you. The Nicene Creed, one of the Christian creeds says, we believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, and he spoke through the prophets. So in the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit is identified as Lord, okay? Same title that was given to the Father, same title that was given to the Son, yet the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father and Son, And we learn that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. But the creed also says that the Holy Spirit is the giver of life, meaning not only was the Spirit active in creation, bringing life, uh, that life emanated from the Spirit of God, but he's also specifically the giver of new spiritual life. So that regenerative work in our salvation, uh, where we receive new life where there was previously death, Um, That is a work specific to the Holy Spirit. So the Nicene Creed kind of affirms that. And by the time I'm done talking about it, we'll get it up on the screen. I don't know if we have it. No, you don't have it. All right. So what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Uh, I'm not here this morning to magnify our differences or to do uh, this little side discussion on that. I'm here to just simply read what the Scripture said. And so this morning, we're going to learn what Jesus has to say about the ministry of the Holy Spirit from John chapter 15 in just these short nine or 10 verses or so. And together we're gonna learn five aspects of the Spirit's work. This is not the only work of the Holy Spirit, but from this text, we're gonna learn five aspects. And I'm not gonna give them to you up front. We're gonna get them as we go through the text. Some of you are ready, like where's the outline slide? I'm ready to go. We'll give them to you as we go through. Now, we're studying the last words of Jesus to his disciples in this series through John 13 through 17. And we know from the last few weeks, Jesus has left the upper room. Uh, He's now walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, And what we'll cover this week and next week, what we call John chapter 16, 
This is actually the final teaching of Jesus to his disciples, his closest followers, before he prays and then says amen and is betrayed by Judas uh, to the chief priests and elders and eventually is handed over to Rome to be crucified. So this is it. This is the final chapter of Jesus' teaching. Uh, let's do this. Let's begin in the second part of verse 4. And let's, before we get into those five aspects of the Spirit's work, let's first see the importance of Christ's ascension. We don't talk enough about the ascension of Christ as an important doctrine. But let's do that for a minute. Verse 4, the second half, Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Look back at verse 4. He says, I did not say these things to you. What, what things? Well, what we covered last week in the first four verses of John 16 in the end of chapter 15. Jesus had not expressly warned his disciples what to actually expect in their treatment from the world in large part. Uh, because they weren't yet ready for it. He was still incarnate and among them. But now in verse 5, um, Jesus says, uh, you know, now let me tell you where I'm going. I'm going to him who sent me. But then he says something strange. He says, but none of you asks me where you are going. I would say, actually, Jesus, I think two guys asked you where you're going. Peter asked you in John 13, 36, and Thomas asked you in John 14, Five. So what do you mean? I think you're mistaken. Of course, Jesus is not mistaken. Listen to what's happening here. In those instances, those two disciples were asking Jesus um, where he's going, not because it had to do with their concern where he's going, but more about where they're going to be left alone. It's kind of like those of us who are dads who leave for work, and our, our little boy comes to us and says, Dad, where are you going? You know, you and I don't say, well, son, I'm going to leave. I'm going to drive down State Road 70. I'm going to take a left on the interstate, and then I'm going to head up. I'm going to have a decision to make at the fork 275 or 75. I'm going to head north, and I'm going to pull into my office. Here's the GPS coordinates. They're not asking literally where are you going. They're just wondering why are you leaving me? Why are, this has more to do with me than to do with you. And so they were asking where are you going not because they wanted to know where Jesus was going to end up, not his destination. They just wanted to know why he was going to be gone from them. They're only worried about their own loss. I wonder in this moment if the disciples had lumps in their throat as they thought about Jesus leaving them. Have you ever been with someone and you know this is the last time I'm going to see them? Some of you have had to say goodbye to loved ones. You know, this is the last goodbye. I had to say that and know that with my grandfather this last year. And this is the last time I'm going to see you. Paul said to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, you know, they were weeping. He said, this is really the last that I'm going to see you. And so the disciples, they're, they're, as Jesus said, their hearts are filled with sorrow. Why? Because they'd walked with Jesus for three years. Think about that. They had witnessed the miracles, the healings, the, the blind eyes and the deaf ears open. They had seen the shriveled hands extending out. They had seen the lepers cleansed. They had even seen the dead raised. They had heard the teachings of the kingdom of God. They had witnessed the humility and the meekness that Jesus demonstrated. Uh, they saw grace and truth exemplified right before them. They understood the glory of the Father. They'd seen the light of the world and grace and truth and perfect love. And all of that represented in the person of Christ was about to depart from them. And so there's a phrase we use. It's a stupid phrase. It's Parting is such sweet sorrow. Have you heard that phrase? Parting is such sweet sorrow. 
I don't know who came up with that. Uh, maybe it was someone with teenagers and they were leaving for the weekend. You know, parting is such sweet sorrow, son. I'm sorry to see you go. Yes. I don't know if that's where the phrase came from, but I, I get it if that's the case. But see, from the disciples' perspective, there's nothing good here about Jesus' imminent departure. There's nothing good. We've been with you, Lord. Where, where are you going? Jesus said, none of you have asked me because you wanted to know that this is better for me and better for you. But with that in mind, how do we square with verse 7? Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Verily, verily, I say to you, this is the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You and I read that, and maybe with the disciples, have a bit of a tinge of unbelief. Eh, it's better for us that you leave? Mm, I don't know, it'd be better if you were here with us. I've often wondered what I would do with a time machine. What would I do if I could maybe be Marty McFly and, and have a DeLorean? What would I do if that were me? What, what would I do? Where would I go? There are certain times in history I'd like to go back to, and certain times I'd like to avoid. We'll just avoid the 90s altogether. We'll just jump over that decade. I would love to go back and see the three years that Jesus walked on this earth. Wouldn't that be amazing to go back and actually see Jesus, to hear him on the mount, to hear the, the sermon on the mount, to watch him interact with people, uh, to, to see him. And so um, sometimes we think like, man, the disciples got that. There's so much, they had it better than us. I wish I could have been with the disciples and actually see Jesus uh, because they got to hear his voice. They, they, as John says in 1 John, they got to hear him and handle him and touch him, right? The, the lepers felt his embrace. The thief on the cross heard that uh, reassuring promise. The crowds got to receive from him. And sometimes I think we think that. Like, it would just be better if Jesus never ascended. I, I know I've thought that, but here Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's better for us, the church, it's to our advantage that I go away. Uh, would you circle that word with me, church? Circle the word advantage there in verse 7. Uh, the dictionary defines advantage as this, a condition or circumstance that puts one in a favorable or superior position. Uh, an advantage, okay? Um, I played tennis in high school, varsity tennis, and um, loved playing tennis. Uh, it was a fun game. I couldn't, they didn't let me play on the football team. Um, so uh, then I said, how about baseball? Didn't let me play on the baseball team. I tried soccer. No, I tried women's soccer. They wouldn't let me play on any of these teams. So I said, is there any sport left? They had underwater basket weaving and they had tennis. So I'm going to go tennis route. And so I got to play on the tennis team. I think I was third string because they only had one player or two players. So got to play. Now, scoring in tennis is much like scoring in bowling. It makes no sense whatsoever, okay? So let me just walk you through this real quick. When you have zero points in tennis, you don't have zero, you have love. Now, I understand that in high school, love equals zero. I kind of got that then, but so you have no points, it's love, okay? Love, love, all right, zero, zero. But if you were to score a point, okay, this isn't America where you get one point, right? You get 15 points. So if you score once, you get 15 points. That seems generous, but... Uh, now it's 15, zero, 15 love, okay? So now you score again, it's not 16, it's another 15. So now it's 30 love. So I thought, okay, I'm going to score a third time, now it's 45 love. No, of course not, it's 40 
love. Now it's 40, wherever they came up with 40. And so if your opponent catches up to you, when you have 40 versus 40, it's not called 40-40, it's called something called deuce. Right? I'm not making this up. You have deuce, okay? And so when you have deuce, one of you then scores. Now one of you, the one who scores, has the, quote, advantage. That's the word, the advantage. And as a tennis player, when you have advantage, that means the next score that you make, uh, you win. Unless the other person scores, then it goes back to deuce. Right? I was trying to figure out this scoring model, and then it made sense. I looked it up. Tennis came from France. Aha, that's what happened. Get it now. Okay, so... When you have an advantage in tennis, it kind of lets your guard down. You're, you're actually able to relax a little bit because you know one more score. I've got the, as the definition goes in the dictionary, the superior position. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying about us. We have the superior position. Uh, the word for advantage in the Greek on the screen is the word sumphero. It's two Greek words, the word together and the word to carry. So you could translate it literally to gather together, to bring together to help, to be profitable, to be expedient. Paul uses this word a lot in his writings. Remember, he talks about what is beneficial, what is profitable. Uh, interestingly, it's the same word Caiaphas uses in John 11 when he prophesied about the death of Jesus. On the screen, John 11, 49 and 50, one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. And he said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is, here's the word, better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. It is better. You'll be brought together in a profitable way if Jesus dies. Hmm. You see, the hymnist wrote, my Savior, can it ever be that I should gain by losing thee? And the answer is absolutely yes. Yes. Listen to how these different Bible translations render the word advantage in verse 7. On the screen, the Holman Christian Standard says, it is for your benefit. Uh, the King James, or the New King James, says it is expedient. Uh, the New, uh, New International Version says it is for your good. The New Living says it is best for you. Church, it is to our advantage that Jesus ascended to the Father. Why? Because of what he goes on to say. He says, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, because Jesus departed, the Spirit could now come. And when the Spirit came, uh, those uh, who have the ministry of the Holy Spirit are now placed at a greater advantage than those who physically walked with Jesus. Isn't this amazing? So if you're taking note, we're going to jot down five aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry uh, from this text. Again, this is not exhaustive, but from this text. And here Jesus describes one of them. If you're taking note, number one, the Spirit helps. Jot that down. The Spirit helps. He says, it is to our advantage that I ascend to heaven. Why? So that the helper would come to us. The phrase helper, as we learned in the last few weeks, is the, uh, the Greek word parakletos. It means alongside helper, our advocate. Now, often we say ignorant things like, man, if Jesus were just here with me right now, then, then I would know what to say. I'd know how to do ministry. Uh, I would... I would know what to do. I wish Jesus never ascended to the Father, but he, I wish Jesus were right here with me. We used to wear those bracelets. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in this situation if he were just here with me? But church, by his Holy Spirit, he is here with you. He's alongside you, helping you. Now, I want you in this text to just with me real quick, look at your Bibles uh, or your screen if you've got the Bible app and notice the personal pronoun, he or him. 
It lifts off the pages. Okay? Uh, the personal pronoun, he or him. So the Holy Spirit is thought by some to just be a power or to be an essence. Uh, and, and I understand why, because the, the Hebrew word ruach is uh, the Hebrew word for spirit. Uh, and, and it also means breath. And the word pneuma, the Greek word for spirit, can also be translated uh, as wind or air. Um, but we know from sections like this that the Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus didn't say the, the helper, it will help you, come to you. Uh, the early church scholar Arius caused division by declaring that God the Father was the only true God and Jesus was a created being and the Holy Spirit was just an essence. And this is known as the, uh, the Arian heresy. Uh, you and I may have heard some older Bible translations say the Holy Ghost, or maybe your grandparents said it, the Holy Ghost. And I, I don't think that's a bad translation, but we can sometimes think of the Spirit as this ghostly presence. And we hear even Spirit, and we think, well, there's kind of like a, like a, a, a non-personal aspect to the Holy Spirit, just a, a force, like Star Wars, that I'm going to use to take down a Sith Lord. But see, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The personal pronoun, he or him, look at your Bibles. I won't go through each one, but it's listed over a dozen times by Jesus in John 14 and 16. You and I would never say when we walk outside, man, that wind is strong. He almost blew my hat off. We wouldn't say that. Neither would we say, you know what? Uh, you know, my brother, I love my brother. It is a great friend. We wouldn't say that, right? We say he. And so in the same way, we should, church, we should address the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, he or him. Just consider these truths about our helper. Look on the screen. Check this out. 14 different aspects of the helper. You don't have to write all these down. Take a picture. Do yourself a favor. Uh, the Holy Spirit has knowledge, has a will, has a mind. He loves, according to Romans, he speaks. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He teaches us. He guides uh, sometimes forbidding things would not allow Paul and his group to go into Asia. The Spirit strives with man. He can be grieved by us. Hebrews tells us we can insult him. He can be lied to and blasphemed. But isn't it amazing that we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Um, the Holy Spirit is a person, and he's personal. He's our alongside helper sent by the Father to be the second advocate and to help us in our weaknesses. Now, with that in mind, let's keep reading. Look at verse 8. It, Jesus says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If you're taking note, secondly, jot this down, church. Number two, the Spirit convicts. The Spirit convicts. Here Jesus says the Spirit convicts of three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, I love what one person said. They said sin is the truth about us. Righteousness is the truth about God. <laughs> And judgment is the inevitable conclusion when you put those two truths together. Uh, now, Jesus gets specific here. Uh, let's read on, verse 9. He walks through each one of these. He says in verse 9, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, before we dive into that, first of all, you need to know the Spirit of God convicts. You could insert the word rebuke refute, expose, or even prosecute. The Holy Spirit is active in the world showing people their sins. You could say prosecuting them 
and summoning them to repentance. David Gusick says it this way. I love this. He says, before the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, one may say, yeah, I make a lot of mistakes. Nobody's perfect. But after the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, one may say, I'm a lost rebel fighting against God and his law. I must rely on Jesus to get right with God. The Spirit brings conviction to the world in three ways. First of all, Jesus says that the Spirit convicts the world of sin. And notice that he says sin because they do not believe in me. Now, church, if you jot this down, he's not saying sins, plural, but the sin, singular, of unbelief. It was the sin of unbelief that nailed Jesus to the cross. Unbelief. He says, I have come, or the Spirit will come to convict the world of unbelief. If you're here this morning, you do not know Jesus. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You are by nature a child of wrath. And I say that with a smile because there's hope. There's joy waiting for you if you would repent and trust Christ. Live for him. That you would surrender your will and your heart and your mind. And come to Jesus. My prayer is that you would be drawn by the Father. You'd come this morning and know him because he's wonderful. And he promises to cover your sin. Not just to cover it, to cleanse it, to remove it. And to give you a, take that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He's come to convict the world of unbelief, of the sin of unbelief. But not only that, secondly, of righteousness. He says, because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer. This is a little bit hard to understand, but Jesus is essentially claimed to be righteous. He claimed to be righteous, but men on earth said the opposite. Oh, he's not righteous. He's got a demon. Well, the Father had the final word. Jesus died Jesus rose again. He ascended to the Father. And so you can't say, well, he was unrighteous. You have to say, no, he was absolutely right with God. And so not only does Jesus silence men's false accusations by the Holy Spirit, but he also convicts the world of their lack of righteousness. Uh, when we think about being justified, being made right with God, what does it mean to have righteousness? We need to understand um, that it's not just that our sins were subtracted from us. Like, I wish I could be right with God. So he just comes like mathematically and just erases our sin and that's it. I want to be righteous, God. And so he just takes away the debt and the sin that we owed. It's more than that. And so we just kind of stand before God with an empty bank account and a clean slate. See, it's greater than that. Uh, we also have had Christ's righteousness imputed to us, which means not only does he subtract our sin, but mathematically he also adds the righteousness of Christ to our account. Romans 4, 24 and 25 says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It was counted to us. His righteousness was imputed to us. I like what J. Vernon McGee says. He says, either we have as much right in heaven as Christ himself has, or we have no right there at all. Isn't that awesome? You and I have been given the righteousness of Christ. We have now in our account, not just a, a zero, uh, not a deficit, not a zero account, but we've been given the storehouse of the righteousness, the bounty of God's blessing in Christ. And so the Spirit convicts the world of sin, unbelief, and also of its lack of righteousness. And like evidence in a court of law, there's a lot to testify against. But thirdly, notice with me, that he convicts the world concerning, verse 11, judgment. And he says, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, this is clearly referring to Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air. This is not a reference to Caesar. This is not a reference to 
a president. This is a reference to Satan, who's known as the ruler of this current age, the ruler of this world. Now notice with me, Jesus did not say he will be judged, but he is judged. Present tense. He is judged. Uh, The devil has already been condemned at the cross. And one day, all who join him in denying Jesus as Lord will suffer as children of wrath. So church, let's just summarize this. The helper will expose those who are sinful, those who are righteous, and those who are really judged. But notice the irony here. Jesus here is about to be tried. He's about to be convicted. He's about to be judged on the cross. And in that act, the world and its ruler think we've triumphed. But see, Jesus turns it around and says, no, the helper is going to show the very opposite is true. That Satan and the world are the ones being judged through the cross. So the Spirit brings conviction to the world. And listen, I would much rather have the Spirit as my advocate for me than the attorney against me. Amen? I would much rather have the Holy Spirit defending me than convicting and prosecuting me. So I'm sure at this point the disciples had enough. They had heard enough, and I think that's why in verse 12 Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Literally in the Greek, that's police echo lego. I have much more to say to you. I have so much more I want to tell you. I love here, just a side note, Jesus understands when not to speak. Right? Help us, Lord, in our marriages. He knows when not, you can't bear this now, I'm not going to say this. Right? I think that's an overlooked aspect of preaching and teaching. Sometimes an audience can't handle uh, too much, right? So know what not to say. I mean, if anyone had something to say, it was Jesus. And if anyone needed to hear more words of comfort, it was these disciples. Uh, it would have been in their minds much more beneficial for Jesus just to keep talking, just stay, just keep talking. But notice he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because look at verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. If you're taking notes, the third aspect of the Spirit's ministry is number three, the Spirit guides. The Spirit guides. Uh, Notice that here Jesus says the Spirit of truth will guide you into all the truth. Now, in a very localized and specific way, the you is the disciples. What he's saying is uh, the Spirit will guide you, the apostles, to record and manuscript the truth of the gospel and write down what Jesus did and taught. The Spirit will guide you into all that truth. But we could zoom out a little bit. In a very universal sense, the Holy Spirit will guide people throughout time into all the truth. But listen, he does that through the Scriptures. He doesn't do that in a way that would ever contradict the Scriptures. So if someone comes to me, I'm actually very leery when I hear people say, hey, God spoke to me. And I always want to say, well, like, what voice did he have? Did he have an accent? Was it a deep, booming voice? Was it a female voice? Like, what voice did God come and speak to you? I've even heard people attest that they've audibly heard God speak to them. They say, oh, if I, I just want to be like Samuel, and I just want to say, speak, Lord, and I want to actually hear or, or have Jesus whispering next to me. I want Jesus right there to, to like, suddenly visualize and, and materialize and speak to me. Um, But see, church, it was better for us that Jesus ascend. Uh, And because the Spirit of God illuminated hearts to receive the truth, the Scriptures have come to us, uh, this divine revelation of the Father, the Word of truth, and we now have the ability to be guided into all truth. Some of us go, Lord, I just wish you would speak to me. Please speak to me. He's like, I have. I've given you 
the full counsel of God. Are you listening? I love what John Piper says about this. He says, we have the wholeness of the revelation that Jesus meant to communicate. And it is speaking to us every time we read the Bible. And if we turn away from that and say, but I need a sign. I need a voice. I need a tree to fall down in the woods when I'm talking. I need something. Then he says, we're putting ourselves in the position of those who demanded a sign, which is never a good place to be, by the way. He says this, I love this. Instead, I think our hearts should be, oh God, this is the way Paul taught the Ephesians to pray in Ephesians 1.18. Give my heart sight. Open my eyes to your power. Open my eyes to your wisdom. Open my eyes to your inheritance. You say stunning things that should blow me away and give me a sense of your worth beyond anything any message outside the scriptures should give. So Father, if I'm not seeing, if I'm not hearing, have mercy upon me and open my eyes. Love that. Just to be silly and, and a little convicting, Justin Peters says it best. I don't know if we have the quote up there, but he said, if you want God to speak to you, you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want God to speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> I love that. I want to hear God speak. Well, they have a Bible app and you can now listen to it. So I hear God speak to me every morning on my commute and get to hear him speak through the Bible app. So notice the rest of verse 13 to the end of verse 15. Verse 13, Jesus says, but whatever he hears, the Spirit, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We have two more aspects of the Spirit's work. Number four, from this text, the Spirit declares, most notably, the words of Jesus and the things that are to come. So the Spirit's not going to speak on his own authority. Uh, he transmits the message sent by the Father, but also takes the teachings of Jesus and declares it to us. Listen, one of the Holy Spirit's primary ministries is to speak, to declare. We read the Nicene Creed at the beginning of the sermon where it says he spoke through the prophets. The Spirit of God was active in the Old Testament as he spoke through the prophets. When the Spirit fell at Pentecost, the manifestation was that people spoke. They spoke in tongues. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my martyrs. You will be my witnesses, ones who speak. And you'll do that in Jerusalem, Judea, even Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Uh, Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, he said, hey, you need to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. And the very next thing he says is addressing one another. He happens to say in songs, hymns, spiritual songs, but we address one another. Uh, the Holy Spirit was active in inspiring every word of Scripture in our canon. And so Jesus says the Spirit will declare the things that I've said, but he also says the things that are to come. Now, this is specifically a picture of the future prophetic fulfillment in the New Testament that we see in the book of Revelation. This does not mean the Spirit will show you what is to come. So I need to buy some lottery tickets, and the Spirit will show me what a horse to bet on. That's not what he's saying here, the things that are to come. I will know if this car's a lemon before I buy it because the Spirit will show me what's to come. That's not what he's saying. He's talking uh, specifically about uh, Revelation. You may have spiritual discernment, but when we read about prophecy as a spiritual gift, it's not as much foretelling, knowing the future, as it is forthtelling, speaking the word of God. And so... The Spirit declares the words of Jesus given by the Father and speaks it to us. 
Well, there's one more aspect uh, that is central to the Holy Spirit's work in the church and in the world. And we just read it. The fifth one is number five, the Spirit glorifies. More specifically, the Spirit glorifies Jesus. Notice that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will glorify the Son by taking what is mine and declaring it to you. Now, I believe that this last one is the litmus test of the Holy Spirit. He will always glorify Jesus. When you hear people flocking to a tent meeting or a church and they say, oh man, the Holy Spirit is doing this, the Holy Spirit is doing that, come see what the Holy Spirit is doing, I honestly will raise a concerned eyebrow, not because I'm not excited about the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's why. Because the Spirit will not do a work to draw attention to himself but to draw attention to Christ. So if you said God is doing a work and Jesus is being glorified, he's being manifested here, then I'd say yes and amen. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and, and he tells them that the Spirit transforms us into the image not of like a better you, not of an image of the Holy Spirit, but he says we're transformed into the image of Christ. So if any time the Holy Spirit wanted to take a monopoly, like, okay, this is my turn. All right, thank you, Jesus. You did your job. Now it's my turn. I'm on the scene now. I've, you've ascended. You had your moment. Now it's my time. I'm going to come down. I'm going to make much of me. I'm on the scene and glorify. No, no, it's, it's all about glorifying Christ, not the attention on self. J. Oswald Sanders said it this way. I love this. He said, the ministry of the Spirit is Christocentric. The test of any professed movement of the Spirit whether in personal or corporate experience, here it is, is the place it gives to Christ. See, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing Jesus more glory and more attention in our ministries and in our lives. J.I. Packer said that the Holy Spirit's distinctive role is to fulfill what is called a floodlight ministry in relation to Jesus. Here's what he says. I don't have it on the screen, but he says, when floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are placed so that you do not see them. In fact, you're not supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you're meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for darkness and to maximize, listen to this, to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you can see it properly. He said this is the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. And so the Spirit's message to us, Packer says, is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. So church, the Spirit helps us. The Spirit convicts. The Spirit guides into all truth. Uh, the Spirit declares the Word of God and the, scripture glor or the Spirit glorifies Christ. But listen, these are not exhaustive. I mentioned that earlier. There's other work that the Holy Spirit does outside of this text. We know the Spirit regenerates, uh, indwells, and baptizes believers. We know that the Holy Spirit seals us, sanctifies us, fills us, empowers us, uh, uh, imparts gifts to us, and causes us to bear fruit. Where would we be without the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Jesus would say, it's better for you that I go away. It's an advantage to you because now you have the helper who would come and do the work so needed to advance the gospel in all the world. You and I are, whether you believe it or not, we're in a superior position 
even to the disciples. And I don't say that in a haughty way, but we're in a superior position. Uh, remember, later in John's Gospel, Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who believe though they have not seen. Guess what? Look at your neighbor and say, that's you. Go ahead. That's you. That's you. That's you. You and I have a deeper blessing than even the disciples. We have a greater advantage than having Jesus right here among us incarnate because we have the Spirit of God who dwells within all believers, who is active and at work even today in Lakewood Ranch. You know the Holy Spirit is at work in this church? The Holy Spirit is at work in your marriage. The Holy Spirit is at work in your children. Even your wayward children, the Holy Spirit is at work with that coworker that you're praying for and that you're believing that God's gonna reach for the gospel. The Holy Spirit's at work. And so we can rest in that truth that it's better for us that Jesus ascended, that we have a place of advantage. We have a special place of blessing. Isn't that awesome? Well, I wanna spend a few minutes and apply this passage of scripture. So if you're taking note, uh, here's some application for us. Uh, three points of application. Number one, I wanna encourage us as a church to receive. Uh, receive something specifically. I, I'm gonna ask us to consider receiving the help of the Holy Spirit. We're told by Jesus he's the helper. Have you ever resisted somebody's help? You ever done dishes, wives, and your husband comes to help you, and you're like, no, uh, no, I've seen the way you load the dishes. I got this. <laughs> I don't need your help. But then suddenly the kids are going crazy and diapers are being changed. Okay, okay, I'll take your help. Uh, but now your husband's doing his thing, and now you refuse the help. Uh, I'll just share this little story. I've shared this before, but one of my favorite cars I've ever driven was a, a Volkswagen. I loved it. It was black. It had this nice leather interior. had a sweet sound system and rims. The engine was rough, but who cares? We had tunes. I mean, this thing was great. It was awesome. And um, I remember the, this, this alert came on. And uh, I, was, I used to be a youth pastor at Calvary Chapel, Sarasota. It was, uh, it was right after youth group. And this mechanic came up, and I was trying to turn it over. It wasn't turning over. And so this mechanic came up to me, and uh, he's so prideful. I wouldn't help. And in my pride, I'm like, nope, nope, no, nah, we got this. We're good. I was so prideful. I wasn't willing to admit that my car had an issue. I didn't want to receive his help. And so, no, no, we're good. We got this. We're good. We're good. I'm like, it's probably just the uh, flux capacitor. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. That's two references in one sermon. So I'm like, come on, it's, it's going to turn over. And uh, finally, I made it turn over, and it's flashing. What I didn't realize is that little, that little prideful push away cost me my engine. It was a last-ditch alert before my engine seized because I forgot to put oil in it for six months. <laughs> yeah, uh, smart one. So lost that car because of that pride. In other words, I was unwilling to receive. I got this, and I don't need any help. Listen, does that describe any of us this morning? Any, any prideful pushaways, even this week, where we realized the Holy Spirit was prompting us to reach out and just receive some help? Listen, you and I have a divine assistant who, according to Romans 8, helps us in our weakness. Look at this verse. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. You ever been there? I don't know what to pray for in this moment. I don't know if I'm supposed to pray for blessing or help or deliverance from this trial or in this trial. What do I pray for? The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, in this weary world of decay and sin, as all creation groans inwardly for redemption, 
you and I can receive the help of the Holy Spirit who even prays for us. He helps us when we're weak. And so we need to stop being prideful and self-sufficient. Lord, I got this, I got this. And we need to receive his help. D.L. Moody was supposed to uh, schedule some preaching in England. And apparently uh, an English elderly pastor, I'm not going to do the English accent, but apparently said to a, a group of pastors, he said, why do we need this Mr. Moody? He's uneducated and inexperienced. Who does he think he is anyway? Does he have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? Well, this younger, wiser pastor spoke up and said, no, but apparently the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. (laughs) When is the last time you asked for the paraclete, the alongside helper, to uh, really come alongside you and to strengthen you and help you? We We need to receive the Spirit's help. He's our helper. So don't resist that help. Secondly, Uh, Here's another point of application for us, uh, for us to respond. Respond specifically, church, to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You see, the world will reject the conviction of the Holy Spirit because they're dead in trespasses and sin. And through unbelief and unrighteousness, they've suppressed the knowledge of God, the truth of God. They've exchanged that, the glory of the Creator, for the minor league glory of created things. And so God has given them over to lust and depravity. And so they stand as children of wrath, separated from the life of God, known only through the person and work of Christ. And so the Spirit brings prosecution against the world, against the world's sin, righteousness, and judgment. And because of the cross, though, the finished work of Christ makes us righteous when the Spirit regenerates us, when we trust Christ by faith, and we turn from our sin, and we receive the indwelling presence of the Spirit within us. And so now what happens after we're born again is when we sin, and by the way, Christians do sin. No wives elbow your husbands, but we do sin. The Spirit then will convict us of our sin and cause us to confess and repent and turn away from it. But listen, when we refuse to submit to this conviction as Christians, we actually grieve the Spirit of God. Some of us this morning are in that place where we've grieved the Holy Spirit and we've resisted His conviction. I want to ask you this morning to to actually respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and respond in obedience and submission to the Lord. A third point of application this morning is for us, number three, to rely. To rely specifically on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Is this something we would say we're actively doing? J.D. Greer said many Christians, I love this, he says, many Christians believe in the Holy Spirit, but they relate to him the way they relate to the pituitary gland. Right? They're grateful that it's there. Uh, they know it's essential for something, but they really don't pay attention to it. I, I like that. <clears throat> Would that we be a church <clears throat> that was known as being reliant upon the Holy Spirit to guide us through the Scriptures. Kevin DeYoung says the Spirit, I like this, is a light to us in three ways. The Spirit is a light in three ways. Number one, He exposes sin so that we can recognize it and turn away. Secondly, He illumines the Word so that we can understand its meaning and grasp its implications. And thirdly, he takes the veil away so that we can see the glory of Christ and become what we behold. Or to put it another way, the Spirit sanctifies by revealing sin, by revealing truth, and by revealing glory. Church, the Spirit will guide us into all truth. This is not a strange ethereal experience, but a real and tangible revelation. It's not a divine impression as much as it is God-breathed 
declaration. And I want to I sit on this point for a minute. I want to invite our worship team to come forward. Uh, we're going to close in song. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, understood the Spirit's need, or the need, rather, to rely on the Spirit's power. And every time he preached, I never knew this, every time the Spirit preached, or Spurgeon preached, he would take steps to the pulpit, and as he's walking, every step, he would say, I, and then another step, believe in the Holy Spirit. He believed in the Holy Spirit's power to speak through the Word of God. And that's really our pastor's challenge for us this week. I try to close every sermon with a pastor's challenge. This week it is the question, are you listening to the Holy Spirit speak to you? And note that I'm holding my Bible. Stephen Cole says it this way. That's how your study of God's word should be. The Holy Spirit is the divine guide who takes you from room to room, revealing the riches of Christ to your soul. Sometimes you're on your 20th trip through a book and you see something you'd never seen before. So you stop and revel at the glory of God in Christ. At other times, you make a connection between one part of God's word and another part that lets you see afresh that this book is not a product of human genius, but rather the inspired word of the living God. He says, but you'll never get to a place in this lifetime or even in all eternity where you can say, I know it all. There's nothing more for me to learn from the Bible. He says, so keep reading your Bible over and over, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal more of Christ to your soul. Amen? My prayer for you this morning is an invitation for you to respond to one of these things. Usually we say, bow your heads, close your eyes. We're not gonna do that this morning. We've done too many of these prideful pushaways. Are you here this morning and you just admit, Pastor, will you pray for me? I need to rely on the help of the Holy Spirit. I need to receive his help in my marriage, in my sanctification. You say, Pastor, pray for me. I need to hear the voice of God in the scriptures. I need to receive from him. It's not that Jesus hasn't spoken, that the Spirit hasn't spoken. It's that we haven't taken time to listen. See, Proverbs 25, 11 says that a word fitly spoken or aptly timed, a word given at just the right time is like an apple of gold, apples of gold in settings of silver. In other words, a word at just the right time is like a beautiful, refreshing table setting that's the centerpiece of your meal. I don't know how many times in my own life, I've sought the Lord and said, Lord, I need a word from you. I need you to speak to me. And I'm not listening for a whisper. I open the scriptures and at just the right time, there it is. I remember Jen and I were struggling with our parenting and discipline. We were like, Lord, please speak to us. And we spent time that morning wrestling and just struggling. And we spent our time in the Proverbs and there it was in black and white coming off the page, what God was speaking to us. And we were so refreshed, we were so emboldened and free then in our parenting to make those difficult disciplinary decisions because God spoke to us. And listen, divine clarity lifting off the pages of scripture is available to us every single day. Are you listening? I wanna challenge you to listen. I wanna pray for you. As our eyes are open, heads are not bowed, would you raise your hand, pastor, pray for me for that? Any prayer for that? I would imagine many of us need that. We need that prayer to be answered in our life. Spirit, be my helper, be my guide. Declare to me the words of Jesus. 
and help in my life for there to be a glorification of Christ. If you raise your hand, I want to pray for you and just commit this to the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me, church? Holy Spirit, we want to respond to the gentle conviction that you bring us when we sin. We want to come to the Comforter who reminds us of the cross and the penalty that was paid on our behalf. Lord, when we come to the scriptures, we want to ask, Lord, that you would illuminate them, that we would have understanding, we would be guided into all truth, that you would declare the word to us. We want you, Jesus, to be glorified in and through our lives. So I pray for those who have raised their hand to rely on the Spirit's help, help in our families, help in our witness, help with our marriages, help in whatever situation we find ourselves in, that we would rely on you, the divine assistant. We thank you that you're doing a great work. And so, Lord, as we close this morning, remind us that all we have, all we need is found here and that it's to our advantage that you went away. Thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, but you sent the Holy Spirit of promise. We commit the rest of our time as we worship to you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.